0: Well, quoting from one of the most well-known passages of Shakespeare, which I'm not going to pretend to have read, all the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. But a stage for what? Now, what, what is the point of the great drama that is being played out in the world? I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 7, verse 1. You can find it on page 53 in the first half of the Pew Bible. This is our third of five weeks surveying the second book of the Bible. The first week, I also gave a quick overview of flyby of the first book, Genesis, as Exodus, the second book, picks up right where Genesis left off, with the 70 descendants of a man named Israel living as honored guests in Egypt, having fled there for refuge from a famine in the land of Israel, Palestine. While one of the twelve sons of Israel, a man named Joseph, was ruling at the right-hand man as the right-hand man of the king of Egypt at that time. Now that Pharaoh dies, and at some point another Pharaoh comes into power who does not honor the arrangement that had been made with the Israelites, but instead enslave them, both for the benefit of their labor, but also as a means of controlling their tremendous population growth. Amazingly, they continue to multiply. So the Pharaoh decrees that all the male babies born to the Israelites be tossed into the Nile River at birth. One of those male babies in particular, named Moses, survives. And he is raised by Pharaoh's own daughter. But then at the age of 40, he has to flee into the wilderness to become a shepherd. Because while attempting to deliver one of his fellow Israelites from abuse, he killed the Egyptian oppressor. Forty years later, God appears to Moses in a burning bush and calls him to deliver all of his kinsmen from their oppressors and to do so simply by speaking the words that God gives him to speak. That brings us now to Exodus chapter seven, verse one. Going to begin by reading the first seven verses. Hear the word of the Lord to you. And the Lord said to Moses, out to the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Let us pray. Father, give us ears to hear your voice in all that you have spoken. As we read of the signs and wonders that you have worked, give us eyes to see and hearts to believe. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, after having objected to God's call five different times in the preceding four chapters, we saw that last week, Now this 80-year-old Moses simply obeys. Having gone before Pharaoh once already back in chapter 5 and having issued the command from God to let my people go, Moses and his brother Aaron now go before Pharaoh once again. And this time they they perform a miracle where Aaron's staff turns into a serpent and it swallows up the staffs of the magicians of Pharaoh and is then taken back up again in, in Aaron's hand And becomes a staff once more. Thus displaying God's sovereign power. Not merely His sovereign power over inanimate objects like staffs and over animals like serpents, but His sovereign power over the king who wore a serpent crown on his head. But Pharaoh, the serpent king, is not moved by the miracle or by the words of God. And so the next day, Moses and Aaron come before him again. They issue the Lord's command, and then they turn the water of the Nile River into blood. So the great source of life for the land of Egypt is transformed into a source of death as the fish die and the river begins to stink. For seven days, for a, for a whole week, the people have to dig along the Nile River to find water to drink. But Pharaoh, despite this, is unmoved, and so the pattern repeats over and over, and over again. These so-called plagues upon Egypt progressively build in the intensity of the misery they cause. In chapter 8, a swarm of frogs comes up out of that Nile River, infesting the people's houses. So, So while the frogs don't bring death, it's a kind of Psychological warfare driving the people to madness, even to the point that the Pharaoh begs Moses and Aaron to plead with God to relent of this plague. And Pharaoh promises to let the people go if he will do so. And so God in mercy relents. He kills off all the frogs, but then Pharaoh changes his mind. The pattern continues. Leads to a third plague of gnats that cover the people and the animals. Many scholars believe these to be mosquitoes, though we can't be certain. Then come swarms of flies that cover the people and their houses and and even the land. Many scholars take these to be the large blood-sucking dog flies of that region. And here with with the fourth plague, we see the first of several references to these plagues only afflicting the Egyptians as God had, quote, set apart the land where his people dwelt thus showing that God makes a distinction between those who are His and those who are not. Then in chapter 9 comes the death of many of the livestock, followed by a plague of boils on the skin of the people and their surviving animals, followed by a plague of lethal hail and lightning that took the life of every field hand and animal that was caught out in the field when when the hail came in the middle of the day. Then in chapter 10 comes a plague of locusts, that cover their land and fill their houses and devour whatever trees and plants the hail had left. Followed by a plague of darkness. The ninth plague. We read this in chapter 10, verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven. And there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. He's a God who can control the sun. And when he withholds his light, there is only darkness. As the plagues stack up one after another, we begin to feel sorry for the Egyptians. And we begin to think that this seems a bit unfair. For it was the Pharaoh who instituted these evil policies of enslavement and of infanticide, right? It was Pharaoh. Yes, but somebody had to carry out his policies. If every Egyptian had chosen to follow the law of God written on their hearts and had simply refused to enslave their neighbors and to murder their neighbors' babies, the Pharaoh would have been powerless to inflict this evil upon the Israelites. Just think of the Hebrew midwives back in chapter 1 who refused to obey Pharaoh. They refused to kill Hebrew babies, even though it could have cost them their lives. Every citizen of every nation is responsible They were responsible for whether they choose to fear God more than they fear wicked rulers like Pharaoh. And so this was just judgment of Egypt. Then in chapter 11, we see the advance warning of the tenth and final horrific plague. The killing of every firstborn man and animal in Egypt. As God had instructed Moses way back in chapter 4, even before Moses arrived in Egypt, he said this, chapter 4, verse 22, Then when you get to Egypt, you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Based on the wording there in chapter 4 and based on the wording of the various required sacrifices that appear in chapter 12 and chapter 13, it appears that it was only firstborn males, and only firstborn males who had not yet had children of their own. Yet even with that qualification, it's obviously an absolutely dreadful act of judgment. But in addition to it being far more severe than the preceding nine plagues, there's something else different about the 10th and final plague. For the first time, God is requiring something of the Israelites in order for the plague to not fall upon them. He's requiring that every household spill the blood of a lamb at twilight. And He's requiring them to take some of the blood and and put it on the doorpost and on the lintel of the house and then to roast and eat the lamb with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Picking up in in verse 12 of chapter 12, the Lord instructs the people, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague shall befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So here in the final plague, as in the previous nine, God makes a distinction between those who are His and those who are not His. But rather than it being a matter of who was and who was not a descendant of Israel, as in the previous nine, here it was a matter of who did and did not heed the word of the Lord. A matter of who and who was not covered by the blood of the Lamb. For those who sacrificed the Lamb were humbly acknowledging that they were no less deserving of God's judgment than anyone else. Wait, what? we ask. God was threatening to bring the plague of death even upon these poor, oppressed, Israelite slaves? They didn't sacrifice a Lamb in their place? Yes. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 Romans in fact, as King David put it, we are all conceived and brought forth in sin. Psalm 51, cursed as sinners at birth, and the wages of sin is death. Romans six twenty-three. All those whom the Lord's judgment passed over in the Passover were passed over by grace, and that grace was received by faith. Faith in the Lamb who died in their place. Of course, all of this points to the sacrifice of Jesus. As Judy said, He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For he, he is the Son of God in human flesh, who alone lived a life without blemish, so that all who trust in Him could be forgiven their sins. For He came to die the death that we all deserve in our place, and to rise in victory over sin and death. On the last day, the Lord's judgment will pass over you if and only if you have received this offer of grace by faith in the blood of the Lamb. The people of Israel faithfully observed the Passover ritual. And at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Pharaoh rose up in the night to discover his firstborn son had died. And picking up in verse Thirty one of chapter twelve. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Thus, after four hundred and thirty years in Egypt, the Exodus begins. But it's not just descendants of Israel who set out that night, as we read in verse thirty eight of chapter twelve a mixed multitude also went up with them. That is, a large number of the Egyptians voluntarily united themselves with the people of God and rose in the night to leave. Just ten verses later in chapter 12, verse 48 and 49, we had the first of many passages declaring that so long as a man is circumcised, anyone of any ethnicity and background who chooses to follow the God of Israel will be counted as though he had been born into that covenant community. Bloodline is not and has never been a factor in salvation. It's about faith. At the end of chapter 13. We read more about how God led His new people toward the Red Sea on the edge of the wilderness. Chapter 13, verse 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And by night, just imagine this, in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So God had said that He would be with them. And so He was, making His presence known every step of the way, even in the darkness of the night, as they took their first steps toward freedom. In John chapter 8, Jesus is in the Jerusalem temple for the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, Succoth. It, like the annual Feast of Passover, it was an annual feast commemorating the Exodus. And during this week-long festival, Several towering 75-foot oil-fed menorahs were lit within the temple courts to remind the people of this very thing, of Genesis or Exodus 13 verse 21, to remind them of the pillar of light that had led them out of Egypt. And standing there in those courts, likely in the light of those great pillars, Jesus spoke to the people, saying, "I am the light of the world." Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What does light do? Light exposes what was otherwise hidden. The dirt, the grime, the the mold, and the rot. But for those who humbly embrace the light rather than rejecting it, for those who are willing to look at what the light exposes rather than turning away, the presence of the light purifies and it brings life. God's light penetrates the darkness and it exposes evil and illuminates the path to freedom. And Jesus is that light. God's light exposes evil and illuminates the path to freedom. And Jesus said he is that light. Turning now to, to chapter 14 of Exodus in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi HaHiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, Oh, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. What's God doing? He's leading the people in such a way that it will appear as though they are confused and as though they're exceptionally vulnerable in this position. Why? Well, he's luring Pharaoh into chasing after them. And not only that, God says he's going to ensure that Pharaoh will chase after them. Verse 4, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. Why? To what end does God harden Pharaoh's heart such that he will pursue them? Why has God led his people to such a vulnerable position? Well, God continues. He says, And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Even before Moses first made it back to Egypt, back in chapter 4, the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt... See that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. But why? Why not just strike Pharaoh dead along with any of his officials who would oppose the Israelites? Why harden him? Well, God actually explained why in the warning about the seventh plague. In chapter 9, verse 14, God said this to Pharaoh through Moses. He said, For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people. It's apparently a reference to the fact that the seventh plague, the plague of hail, was the first that actually took anyone's life. He says, I'll do this so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence. And you have been, you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So God orchestrated these ten great plagues and, and everything that happened at the crossing of the Red Sea so that the whole earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So that all people even Americans living across the world nearly 3,500 years later would marvel at God's great power to judge and His great power to save. That we would marvel at His glory as it's displayed in both judgment and in salvation. In the pouring out of justice and in the pouring out of grace and mercy. As God has said 11 times thus far in the book, He is doing all of these things so that people may know him. Specifically, he says that people may, quote, know that I am Yahweh, that I am the one who is, that the Israelites and the Egyptians and all the world may know that he is the one who is, the one and only God. Remember what he said in chapter 12, verse 12, that I quoted a minute ago. He was executing judgments upon, quote, all the gods of Egypt. He's showing the whole world that those supposed gods are nothing in comparison to the one who is, to the one who alone holds the power of life and death, to the one who alone must be worshipped. So, yes, in judgment for all the Pharaoh's prior sins and for the purpose of glorifying himself in the humiliation of the serpent king, the Lord hardened the Pharaoh's heart. I believe it's the same phenomenon that the Apostle Paul described in Romans chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul speaks of God giving sinners up in the lusts of their hearts. He gives them up in the lusts of their hearts because they exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship false gods. So it's not the language of God steering a person's heart to do evil, but rather the language of God in judgment loosening His restraint upon a person's evil, giving them up to fully carry out the evil that their heart had already been set upon. And so it happens. The Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. He lets go of His restraining goodness upon his heart, gives him up, to do his wickedness. And Pharaoh does pursue the Israelites, thus placing the Israelites between a rock and a hard place, between an army and a sea. Picking up at verse 10 of chapter 14. Chapter 14, verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord, They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? It's because there are no graves in Egypt. What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. This is the 23rd occurrence of that word serve in Exodus thus far. The 23rd time we've heard that word. It's a very important word, not just in Exodus, but in Genesis as well. Seven, seven different times now in Exodus, we've heard the Lord command Pharaoh, let my people go that, what? That they may serve me. Seven times we've heard that refrain. And one time Pharaoh's own servants gave him the same command to let God's people go that they may serve him. And then the Exodus begins in chapter 12, verse 31, as Pharaoh says, go serve the Lord. Many other English translations like the the NIV, the, the NLT, the CSB, they all translate this word as worship. That is, let my people go that they may worship me. It's the same word used in the first of the Ten Commandments, which we'll get to in chapter 20. The first of the Ten Commandments, God says this, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Worship is service. Whatever you serve is your God. Whatever you most fear Whatever you most treasure, whatever you most esteem, whatever exerts the greatest influence over your choices is your master and thus your God. It need not be a pagan deity like the pagans that the Egyptians worshipped. As Jesus explained, it can just as easily be the love of money or fame or power or pleasure or safety and security, ease and comfort. You will either serve God or you will serve an idol. And the Israelites were being set free from their bondage to the Egyptians in order to serve a new master. And so too we in Christ have been set free from our bondage to sin in order to serve a new master. At your conversion, when you heard the gospel and trusted your life to Christ, God was saying to the world and to the flesh and to the devil, let my son or daughter go, that he or she may serve me. We have been saved to serve. But here in verse 12 of chapter 14, the Israelites wrongly believe that it would have been better for them to keep serving Pharaoh rather than serving God. Why? Well, they tried serving God instead of Pharaoh, and their lives only seem to have gone from bad to worse. And they, they see no way forward. They're surrounded on all sides. They don't know what is going to happen next. Sure, life as a slave in Egypt was terrible, but, but at least it was predictable. As a slave, they could see the path of survival laid out before them day by day. And thus, in that sense, life in the service of Pharaoh was easier than life in the service of God. Life in the service of an idol is easier than life in the service of the one true God. Life in the service of an idol doesn't require trust and utter dependence upon an unseen God. It doesn't require faith. And now their fear of what may befall them has shrouded their vision of God. That's what fear of the unknown does. It blinds us to God's light. And so, Moses calls them to step back into the light. Verse 13 of chapter 14. And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today In contrast to the God whom you cannot see, the Egyptians who you see today, you will never see again. Don't trust your eyes. Trust what God has said. Verse 14, the Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. That is, stop crying out for deliverance and just go forward. Go where? They're between an army and a sea. Are they supposed to just step out into the waters of the sea? Yes. Step out into the waters of the sea. Step out into the, to the unknown that lies before you, but to which God is calling you. Step out in faith. Remember that they had set up camp here for the night. And there's a whole lot of them, so it takes them some time to prepare to continue this journey. And during this time, if God tells them to to get up and go, as they're gathering themselves, the great pillar of light that led them to this very place moved from in front of them to behind them, to instead separate them from the Egyptian pursuers. The end of verse 20, "...and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night." Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord drove back the sea by a strong east wind all night and made the, dry, the sea dry land. And the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and, and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watch the the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Oh, let us flee from before the Lord, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Psalm 20, verse 7, He has done the impossible. He has made a way where there is no way and there is no going back now. The Israelites have have passed through the waters. They have entrusted themselves to God's sovereign care. They have entered the wilderness and they are now on their way to the promised land. Well, so too has everyone who has chosen to follow the light of Christ. We have passed through the waters, freed from the penalty and power of sin. We have entrusted ourselves to God's sovereign care. We have entered the wilderness, and we are on our way to the promised land. Well, how so? Well, the wilderness is the life of faith, consciously depending upon an unseen God to direct our way in a dark world. A dark world that is hostile toward anyone who would seek to shine the light of Christ into that darkness, setting captives free by exposing evil and by illuminating the path to freedom. That's the wilderness. We have entered the wilderness and the promised land to which we are headed is the new heavens and the new earth. But like Moses, we have not yet arrived. And so we must keep our gaze fixed upon our destination as we seek God's light for the next step of our journey. But as we make our way through the wilderness, where is this light to be found to guide us on our way? Notice how verse 31 ended again. The people see the dead bodies of the Egyptians. They fear the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. They believed in the prophet of the Lord. Throughout the record of Pharaoh continually refusing to let God's people go, six different times we are told that this occurred, quote, as the Lord had said, or quote, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Six times we hear it over and over again, just as the Lord had said, just as the Lord had said, so it came to be. So surely the point is clear. The reader is meant to learn that what God speaks through his prophets can be trusted. This is eloquently put back in chapter 9 uh, regarding the plague of hail. Chapter 9, verse 20. Whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh. So the servants of Pharaoh hear about the coming hail. Whoever feared what? Whoever feared, not Moses, but whoever feared the word of the Lord spoken through Moses among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. And they were all killed. This is a call to follow God's voice in His word. It's a call to then step out into the great unknown. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Psalm 119, 105. That is not to say that the word of God lights the entire path all at once, right? It doesn't. The Word of God shines a light at the end of the tunnel, revealing our final destination, but it in no way reveals everything that lies between here and there. Indeed, it's a lamp that lights the next step in front of you, one step at a time, guiding you out of darkness and through the wilderness on your way to the promised land. So follow the light. Follow God's voice speaking through His Word, trusting Him for whatever may come, and knowing that all the world is a stage. It's a stage for God to display His glory in the salvation of those who worship Him and in the judgment of those who refuse as the light of Christ is spread by His people. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He says to all Christians, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. You have been saved to serve, to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of the life of darkness you once lived and into His marvelous light. So go forward and shine that light. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. By your light, help us to see all things clearly. By your light, cast out the darkness of our own hearts and make us pure. By your light, shine through our lives that others may likewise be saved to serve and worship you forever. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.